Spiritual life can be complex. Um, Buddhism, of course, has thousands of years of uh, philosophy and um, spiritual practices, and many different schools of thought and different teachers who have different approaches um, to Buddhism. There's thousands of Buddha sutras that Buddha, you know, Buddha personally taught, um, and then there's probably ten times that many commentaries. So the, the spiritual life can be vast. But also, it can be simple, and we can we can identify like a few cornerstones or like key practices that are crucial, and um, and then the the philosophy and and the literature um, is all like additional stuff that we can use to enrich our understanding or to um, get different approaches or different techniques, different ways of thinking about it, but. But really, we can we can um, always rely on a few cornerstones, and of course, the one of those cornerstones in, is uh, Buddhist refuge. Um, refuge is something that has been in Buddhism since the very beginning. Um, Buddha's uh, initial followers, shortly after his death, after Buddha's parinirvana, um, his followers instituted the the refuge practice, and it's been happening ever since. So it's one of the oldest and most consistent Buddhist practices. And refuge is, uh, so we always start a Buddhist teaching and a Buddhist practice with refuge. And refuge is about identifying what we can really rely on, what we can, what really supports us, specifically in our spiritual life, in our spiritual practice. So we're, we're, the reason we go for refuge repeatedly, consistently, is to keep bringing to mind the, what's important about a spiritual life, why we believe our spiritual life is important, and also to, um, to think about what are the, the, the core things in our spiritual life that give us a sense of solace, a sense of protection. And in Buddhism, the main things that we go for refuge for are the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Um, we go for refuge, how we get shelter, how we get protection from the Buddha is this recognition that um, suffering can be ended, that the, the human condition, or really the condition of all sentient life, of all conscious beings, um, which is like this, this constant struggle, like this, the, at best, there's like a low level irritation. And at worst, you know, you can spend an, an entire lifetime consumed only with worrying about um, where your food is going to come from or, or that you're going to be somebody else's food, let alone the, the, the hell realms and the other kinds of um, births that are described in the Buddhist cosmos. You know, in, in all of the births, the, in all of the forms of life, all of the forms of consciousness are characterized by pervasive suffering or to some degree or another. And, and going for refuge to the Buddha is this recognition that that there's an alternative to that, that suffering can be ended. And, um, and that's what, uh, that's what Buddha discovered. That was what Gautama Buddha's great discovery was, nirvana, this, um, this cessation of suffering, this, this lasting pervasive peace and happiness. Um, and that's, that's a great innovation. And it's, and it's a wonderful 
uh, teaching that the that Buddha left. So when we go for refuge to Buddha, we're we're recognizing that there's an alternative to suffering. Um, Buddha is like this paragon of of humanity, this paragon of life. Um, when, and going for refuge to Dharma, the second of the three jewels, is that there are there are techniques that we can do to move ourselves in that direction. There, there's like do's and don'ts. And and one of the things that I find especially inspiring about the Dharma is that there's there's always something we can do. There there are practices for for everyone and at any stage of life and at any at any type of life. So we're it's not just that the pursuit of nirvana is something that can only be done in a Himalayan cave or in a, in a monastery with, with shaved head and surrounded by other monks and nuns. Um, but that, that there are these like breadcrumbs that Buddha and, the, and other um, Buddhist philosophers and practitioners have left behind. And uh, so that's the source of shelter. That's a short source of protection for us. That's a source of, of safety in the spiritual, that the spiritual life provides. And that's what refuge in the Dharma means. Um, and then the third jewel is the Sangha. And the, the Sangha is uh, the community of practitioners. So all of our, all of our spiritual friends, uh, our spiritual teachers, um, the, the Dharma centers, the monasteries, the communities that are focused on preserving Buddhism, but also in supporting one another in practice. So we, in the way that the Sangha is a, is a very real source of support, is a very real source of shelter in that um, Dharma centers provide for us a place where we can go. And our, and our Dharma community provides a, a people who we can reach out to for support in our spiritual practice. And the Sangha, in a bigger sense, is also the, the, history, the, the lineage, the historical lineage of thousands of years of Buddhist practitioners who have developed these ideas and put them into practice and preserved them and transmitted them to the, the next generation. So that's refuge as one of the cornerstones that we can continually call to mind the benefits of a spiritual life and the sources of um, the resources that we have in, in practicing a spiritual life. Another cornerstone, especially in the Mahayana, uh, is um, compassion and altruism. The, the ideal of the bodhisattva, that, that we're not just pursuing nirvana for our own benefit, but that we're pursuing nirvana to um, be of, more and, of greater and greater service to others. As we move along on the bodhisattva path, even as we're total beginners and and maybe are just figuring out Buddhist practices from the, you know, for the first time and, and starting to get these things integrated into our life. Even at that point, we can learn how to be, to increase our capacity for service and connection for others. To, that the, the path of alleviating our suffering is also the path of helping others alleviate their suffering. So we, it's not a selfish practice, a selfish process of, of, uh, of ending suffering, but it's, it's something that we're doing to benefit uh, all of humanity and all of life and all of consciousness. And uh, so the topic of this course, uh, karma, I mean, karma is uh, possibly another cornerstone. Um, understanding causality, understanding the process of cause and effect so that we can uh, leverage our actions 
you skillfully choose how we are using our our mind and our body and our speech to move ourselves along and accelerate this process of developing spiritually and moving towards nirvana, move, moving towards um, Buddhist enlightenment. So, um, you know, the, the kind of homework assignment from last week was to think about how we see the world working, how we see the universe working, and evaluate if we think that things have causes or not, or if we, we, if we believe that the, the universe is created by uh, an omnipotent uh, deity that has established this world that we're kind of moving through and, and, um, and kind of controlling the universe. Um, or if things are just kind of a cascade of chemical reactions from the Big Bang on through up to the present. Um, or if we are willing to invest in this idea that our actions have consequences, that the things that we're experiencing now are the result of uh, previous causes that we've put into place, even in our previous lives, even before we were born in this body. Buddhism asks, asks us to stretch our imagination, stretch our conception of life, to, to see that consciousness is this ongoing continuum that stretches beyond the process of individual birth and death. And that what we think of as our own mind, as our own personality, is uh, and uh, and our own body, right? We think uh, uh, it's easy to habitually think of this physical thing as me, and when when this physical thing dies, that I'll cease to exist. And in a way, that's true. That's true of my personality. That's true of my identity and my self conception. But Buddhism is saying, well, but this is just uh, an instant, an instance of a being in a continuum of consciousness, a continuum of mind that has flown, has flowed through time, uh, essentially time without beginning and time without end. Um, and that's kind of a thought experiment. Is it possible that my that what I think of as my mind is actually just this small, this small sort of expression of this larger process of mind? And if so, then the things that I'm experiencing in my life are the result of causes that were put into place that I don't remember that were maybe put into place by a different being that was this mind before it was me. So that that flow of consciousness is is this continuum of karma, this continuum of cause and effect that everything that's happening is the result of previous causes and that everything that's happened every and the way that I react to it is putting into place the causes for future results. And so when we talk about karma, there's really two type, there's two aspects to karma. Um, and um, I was reading one of the, the old Buddha suttas, one of the Pali suttas earlier today, and, and um, Buddha described it as, uh, as old karma and new karma. Um, and sometimes we also think of this as, uh, or we talk about it as um, karmic causes and karmic results. Causes and results are two different aspects, or uh, of of a, of a karma, and so the the old karma is what's what is emerging emerging now is my experiences in the present. That's old karma ripening. Causes that have been put into uh, put into place in the past are bringing about the results in the present, and then the new karma is how I react to that, how I respond to that is 
what is putting into place the, the causes that will ripen in the future. Um, so this has the, you know, the idea of karma, of what goes around comes around. Um, what I'm experiencing now is a, uh, is a refraction or a reflection or an emergence of, of how I thought and behaved in the past. So to understand what kind of karma I've put into place in the past, I just need to look at the, at the experiences of my life. And this is something that we'll, we'll talk about more in this class. What I'm experiencing in my life now is the is how I thought and how I behaved in the past, both the type of body that I have and the type of the type of life that I have, the environment that I live in, the types of interactions with people that I have. These are all the the uh, the the reflection or the refraction of how I thought, how I behaved in the past, how I respond to those things is putting into place the causes that are going to lead to the type of life I have in the future. So if we want to know what if we want to know how we behaved in the past, we can look at our life in the present, but more importantly, it's it's looking at how we behave in the present, how we think and feel and act in the present that's going to determine the type of life that we have in the future. And that's really what is I think more valuable about karma. I think it's um it's an interesting thought experiment to say, oh, I keep having this type of, these types of event, these types of things keep happening to me. Well, that's an indication that I had a certain type of karma. We'll talk about karmic correspondences. What type of karma relates to what type of result later on in this class. Um, so uh, it's interesting to think about, well, I keep having these types of experiences. That means that I behaved like such in the past. But it's more valuable, I think, more helpful to think about how I, the type of karma I'm creating now and what type of life that's going to lead to. Because that's really where I have control, is, is how I react to things, how I respond to things. Um, gradually changing habits, identifying, noticing how I'm behaving and how I'm reacting identifying what the what kind of result that's going to bring in the future and then learning how to change my habits change my behaviors so that they're going to produce the type of life that I want to lead in the future that I want to live in the future the type of experiences that I want to have in the future so um, there's there's three types of karma um, Virtue, three types of karma, virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral. Sometimes we, we call this good karma and bad karma, or white karma and black karma. And when we say good karma, we mean something specific, which is that these are, uh, that I'm cr putting into place the causes that are going to lead to pleasant or beneficial results for me in the future. And, and a truly virtuous karma is, both, is going to produce both the results of, of having pleasant experiences, meaning like being comfortable, having a healthy body, having good food, living in a clean environment, but it's also going to move me closer towards the ultimate goal of nirvana. Um, and so similarly, non-virtuous or, or bad karma means that I'm putting into place the causes that are going to lead to unpleasant uh, unpleasant results, pain, illness, short lifespan, 
um, a dirty or, or uncomfortable environment, these kinds of things. And then neutral karma, the thing is a lot of our karma that we experience is neutral karma. You know, it's like um, the, the walls in my room are painted white. And I don't feel strongly one way or the other about white walls. I don't have like a, a, a passion for white walls and I don't have an aversion towards white walls. So most of the time, I don't notice the whiteness of the walls. Um, that's, an, that's a neutral karma. So a lot of the things that we're doing, we don't even really notice them, right? When we're, we're looking at a school of thought called Abhidharma and Abhidharma is about exploring micro moments of mind, right? These, these, these deep meditators learned how to slow down their mental processes so they could observe every single thing that their mind is doing. And they say that every, every finger snap, that length of time, there's 60 movements of mind, or maybe 60,000. I've seen both, but 60 is enough, right? 60 every finger snap. And that's happening, finger snap, finger snap, you know, constantly. There, there are, there, the mind is, is proliferating and doing things. Now, most of those movements of mind are the result of neutral karma and are generating neutral karma. And we'll talk more about how, to, how strong uh, virtuous and non-virtuous karma is created. But it's worth noting that a lot of karma is neutral. Um, but the reality is that most of the time we're not creating either. There's a, there's a fourth kind of karma that um, is a mixture of virtuous and non-virtuous karma. Um, and that's like doing, you know, when we do acts that are, that are partially good and partially self-motivated, right? Um, when we donate money to a nonprofit organization and part of our motivation is that we get a tax break or something like that, right? We're, we're, we're doing a good action. The donating of the money, the, the uh, you know, giving of offerings is, uh, is a positive karma. That's virtuous karma. But it's also kind of mixed with, um, with selfish karma too. So um, what we're trying to do with the karmic project is to maximize our virtuous karma and minimize our non-virtuous karma. And we're trying to set ourselves up to have this upward spiral, um, both in our own life and also in our uh, future lives, so that we can, we can have this, uh, this, uh, this upward spiral, this arc towards nirvana, this arc towards enlightenment. And... Um, Karma in its in and of itself is not how we get enlightened. Uh, is not how we we uh, have this realization of nirvana. It's not it's not the case that we just need to amass this massive bank account of white karma uh, of virtuous karma, and then we can like cash it in and get and trade it in for nirvana. Um, or that if we get like enough good karma that will like tip the scale over into nirvana. Karma is uh, entirely about the circumstances of our, of our lives. So when we're generating karma, when we're, when, we're, when we're trying to kind of work the karmic bank account, work the karmic stock market, we're, um, 
we're wanting to set our set ourselves up as much as possible so that we can orient more and more and more of our lives to spiritual practice um, deepening uh, our mind training developing concentration developing meditation um, set, making setting aside the time uh, and and having the the kind of health and lifespan and vitality to be able to put a lot of energy into meditation um, and and ultimately be able to have this sort of realization of nirvana um, yeah so we're we're working on creating the the conditions of our life where we can deepen our spiritual awareness um, meditation is not the only goal of a spiritual life not the only practice of a spiritual life but mind training and developing concentration is an important part of it um, and so similarly, like meditation goes, you know, dovetails into this because learning how to slow down our mind, pay closer attention to our thoughts and emotions as they arise, gives us more of an ability to choose how we respond to the things that are happening to us. And that's how we're planting this karma. That's how we're generating the karma that's going to ripen in the future. And so even when bad things happen to us, even when unpleasant things happen to us, if we have some stability of concentration, if we have some ability to observe and regulate our mind and our emotions, then even when something bad happens, we can respond to it with equanimity. We can respond to it with patience. We can respond to it with compassion for others who are uh, maybe suffering in a similar way. So... Um, uh, we also talked about um, communicating and non-communicating karma last week. And um, communicating karma is the kind of karma where you can see the karma that's being created through the actions, right? Like um, um, being vegetarian with, uh, with the intention of um, preserving animal life and putting the, the, uh, the value of non-harm and non-killing into action by... Um, not eating animal products, for example. That's a, you know, it's an example of a communicating karma because you can see through the action the motivation of the action, the altruism of the action. Now, non-communicating karma is a type of karma where the you the 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 good karma or bad karma is being created, whether or not the action is being put into place in that moment. And this is the type of karma that comes from uh, taking Buddhist vows or precepts, which is, um, you know, the, you know, avoiding the major misdeeds and, um, and by vowing to not harm others, you're collecting the good karma of not harming people, even when you're not actively not harming people. So like a communicating karma would be an example of somebody irritates you and you want to slap them in the face and then you decide not to right that's a that's a that's a communicating karma of non-harming in the moment right but if you take a precept of not harming people then all the time that you're not slapping people in the face that you're create you're you're creating the good karma of non-harming um and but this works both ways right this is like um um, becoming a soldier and and um, and joining an organization that com that you know commits acts of violence and when one you know sets themselves up in this situation where 
if I'm ordered to, I'll harm people, that's a form of non-communicating, non-virtuous karma. So we have to be careful about the kinds of commitments that we, we make because it's possible to make commitments that generate ongoing bad karma whether we're actively doing the harm or not. Um, you know, another example is like, um, is like a, um, a, a military leader who isn't actually pulling the trigger but is ordering others to pull the trigger. They collect, they collect all of the, non, the negative karma of the, the killing that they're ordering, and then they additionally ac accumulate the karma of ordering others to kill. So it's like ordering others to harm people is much more harmful than harming, pe than harming people yourself. You're collecting double karma. So, you know, this is... But the, 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 the point, though, is that we can that we can one of the ways that we can maximize the karmic process is through non-communicating karma which is taking precepts and the the precepts are generally this list of 10 the the list of 10 major karmic misdeeds and um, again this list goes all the way back to the the oldest Pali suttas the the original teachings of uh, Gautama Buddha um, and and he taught this list um he taught this exact same list 2500 years ago so um it's uh it's got you know staying power and so there are three main categories of misdeeds um which which core which correlate to the types of karmic actions that we can do the actions of body karma of body which are physical actions the karma of speech which is how we communicate to others and the uh, karma of mind, how we think and how we use our mind. So the three of body, um, the, the first and the most important, because really all of the subsequent uh, karmic, uh, all of the subsequent misdeeds really fall under this umbrella of non-harming. Um, uh, which is specifically killing, but the, the Sanskrit word ahimsa means to not harm others. Um, and, but it, as, a, as a karma of body, it means, um, it means the harming the bodies of others. So first of all, that obviously means not killing other beings, right? Not ending their lives. But one of the things about karma is that they have kind of grades of intensity, so whereas killing is a higher form and killing, um, you know, killing a, a human is a worse karma, karma than killing an animal or killing an insect, um, it also does go down to um, harming beings with, uh, you know, physically harming beings. And this is, you know, this is tricky because it's like, you know, we drive our cars and then we, you know, we drive down the freeway for an hour and we stop to get gas and there's like insects all over our windshield. Um, and like, we didn't do that with a strong motivation. We didn't do it. We didn't get in the car and drive for an hour on the freeway, like intending to kill a lot of creatures, but nevertheless, we did. And it was an accident and it wasn't with a strong motivation and it wasn't with a strong negative motivation. Like, I hate insects and I want to obliterate as many as I can, so I'm going to smash them with my car. But nevertheless, we are responsible for that. Uh, we're, we're responsible for the karma of killing under that condition. And so this is how, like, 
you know, like that non combination of virtuous and non-virtuous, like say we're getting in our car because we have to get over to our loved one's house because they're sick and we're taking them medicine. Like we're creating a strong good karma by wanting to take care of the body of somebody. And our motivation is to take care of the body of somebody else. And we're doing this action for that purpose. But in the process, we're also creating this negative karma of if accidentally, incidentally, unintentionally uh, harming the bodies of other creatures. Um, and these all have positive correspondences. So when we when we talk about the non-virtuous karmas of this list of, of 10 that we're going through, we also can put all of these in a positive context. So the the converse of the negative, the non-virtuous karma of killing is protecting life. Um, so an example I gave is taking medicine to someone who's sick. Um, you know, those of, you know, you maybe we um, adopt an animal from a shelter that would otherwise be put down and we take care of that creature. Um, you know, these are these are different ways that we can protect life. Um, this is uh, this is one of the reasons that people will go into the healing arts professions with a Buddhist motivation of wanting to um, put in put create the virtuous karma of helping others um, by um, helping you know take care of their bodies, doing massage therapy or becoming a doctor, something like that. The second is um, the the non virtue of stealing or um, more, maybe more broadly, is taking things that are not freely given. There's a few different ways that, um, that, this, that, this is, um, you, that this is phrased, that this is put into place. Like you have stealing, which sounds like, you know, robbing a bank or taking money out of someone's wallet when they're not looking. But this, you know, this also would be like taking office supplies from the, the closet at work or something like that. Um, something, you know, what if it's something that nobody will miss? Well, the thing about karma is that it's our own, it's our own conscience is a largely what's mediating karma. So it's not like you can circumvent the karmic process if nobody catches you or if nobody notices the, the box of paper clips missing. You yourself know whether, what, know that you've done the action and that's what, what creates the karmic imprints in your mind stream. So um, stealing can be any, taking anything that's not freely offered or, or offered to you with generosity. Um, and it's something that you mediate in your own process, in your own conscience. The, the positive aspect of this is um, acts of generosity. And, you know, generosity, if you know the, the six perfections or the ten perfections, uh, which is one of the major bodhisattva practices, um, the first and and really the condition of possibility for all of the the, the um, perfections is generosity. Um, and you know Shanti Deva says uh, who, Shanti Deva, who like wrote the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, like the Bodhisattva handbook. Um, he says just start by giving away things that you don't even want. If ge if generosity is a challenge for you, start by giving away things that are easy to give away. And he specifically uses the example of a carrot. Give someone a carrot and then like work your way up from there to like a bonbon, you know, and uh, something that you really that you do want. And then, you know, building and it's like this this idea of karma is like building these habits 
so that um, we they increasingly become tendencies that we can put into place without much of a struggle. Um, so the negative, the 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 um, the non-virtuous karma is stealing or taking that what which is not freely given, and then the positive side is generosity. And the the most positive, the the strongest form is to um, do these things anonymously. So um, making anonymous donations or giving people, giving somebody, you see somebody who needs something, and and giving them the thing in such a way that it doesn't that there's no kind of personal recognition for it. Um, the third and, and final of the bodily deeds is um, sexual misconduct. And, um, you know, Buddhist monks and nuns take a, a vow of celibacy. Um, but in, in, the, in the Buddhist sutras, Buddha is largely, he's often teaching um, lay people, you know, who are not ordained and um, are, are, you know, have a family, have partners, um, and are not, you know, trying to be celibate. And and Buddha didn't try to convert those people to celibacy and say that, you know, um, no sexual activity is the only true way to practice this sexual misconduct uh, precept. Um, but you will encounter that if you if you if you hang around the Buddhist world, you will encounter Buddhist teachings or, or teachers or literature that says that celibacy is the only way to truly keep this precept. So. Okay, if, if you know, Buddhism says that the cause of our suffering is desire, wanting things, wanting things ignorantly, thinking that that um, thinking that the solution to suffering is getting more stuff or getting rid of things that we don't want, and if we and if that's a habit, that's the you know the these the if that's a habit that poisons the mind, then you know sex and food are two of the main ways that we that can try to alleviate our suffering or think that if we get an, enough of it that we will feel kind of freer and so from that point of view you can see why there's an argument for celibacy because um it's about detaching from from the desires of life that we think bring happiness but actually don't Nevertheless, that's not really how Buddha taught it to lay people. He mostly was talking about um, not manipulating people with your sexual energy and not taking advantage of people sexually. Um, so that means respecting other people's relationships and not trying to interfere with partnerships. And on the contrary, like the positive side would be uh, supporting relationships, helping people who are... Uh, in partnered relationships uh, to stay in those relationships. Um, and so, yeah, sexual misconduct means not, uh, you know, Buddha lists things like um, not having sex with people who are under the protection of their parents, who are uh, in a partnered relationship, who are otherwise uh, not available sexually and trying to access, you know, access them or, or um, entice them somehow. Um, and I think more subtle forms of this are like um, flirting to kind of get things to go our way a little bit. Um, and, and again, the, the, you know, it's subtle. It's like there's a there's a line, I think, between it's possible to be charming without being manipulative. Um, but these are the kinds of things that that this precept is cautioning us to watch out for. 
Okay, the, the next four are related to speech. Um, and that's, um, these are ways that, the, the ways that we use our language and the ways that we use our tone of voice um, makes, you know, it's, it's a form of ahimsa because we're using our words to harm people. It's much more subtle, obviously, than damaging someone's physical body, but it still creates powerful karma. And the first of these, of course, is lying, intentionally deceiving people, giving someone um, uh, an impression that you know to be wrong. Um, and the positive, the positive flip side of that is um, taking a precept to always tell the truth. Um, the the tr always telling the truth and never lying. You know, we run into tricky situations, like for example. You, your your colleague or your friend wears a, a hideous outfit and they come to work and they look awful and they say, how do you like my new, my new shirt? And, you know, you don't want to say, it's hideous. You look awful. Um, but also you don't want to lie and say, oh, it looks great. Yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. So, you know, you're put in a place where you have to kind of uh, come up with something nice to say that is truthful. Well, I like the color. Or um, you have a flair for creativity, and I I admire your your um, your um, express your self expression. Or uh, if you're willing to to you know embarrass yourself a little bit, you can say, "Oh, I I have to go to the bathroom right now. It's urgent. I gotta go," and nobody's gonna try to stop you if you say that. Um, so these are ways of of. Uh, you know, tactfully evading some of these um, of being put in a position of, of maybe having to violate a precept or, or say something you know is going to be unpleasant or, you know, you don't have any good options. The um, next of the four um, precepts of speech of, of, um, of these 10 misdeeds, the 10 major misdeeds, is um, divisive speech. And this is, you know... Um, talking behind people's back. Um, it's This one comes up pretty easily when we're, you know, in the workplace where it's like we have that one coworker that we don't like, but we have to work with them. And we kind of vent, we kind of get off our chest that we don't like that person, you know, when we're not, uh, when they're out of earshot or something like that. Um, and um, that's, that's harmful because it creates divisions between people. And... Um, and it and it sows discord, you know, and it enables discord. Um, and the the positive the positive uh, precept for this is um, speaking in ways that bring people together. So this is where we can, if we see that there's a conflict or we're in a conflict, we can find um, creative and patient and kind ways to. Um, help bring you know solve that conflict and bring people back together or if we have friends who have had a falling out we can do some way of kind of trying to uh, help them work that out um, the next is harsh speech and this is um, speaking in ways that are unpleasant and and hard for people to hear I think that you know this is one of the ways that, like, uh, there's a Buddhist discouragement against using curse words because they're hard on the ear. Um, 
but also it's like this is this is when we're not like necessarily maybe we're not quite going off on somebody because they've because they've irritated us but we're like a little bit snarky or like speak in ways that are like subtly undercutting um i this is something that i myself have had to work on because i you know i don't know if you've ever had this experience but i have where you say something that like sounds nice on the pl- on on the surface but is actually like uh what do they call it a backhanded compliment where you say something that's like that's nice but actually insulting sounds nice but is actually insulting um so that's that's a the kind of subtle form of harsh speech and i you know i have historically i you know i i do this less now i i notice that like by paying attention to myself, I notice when it kind of wells up inside of me and like, oh, here's an opportunity to say something awful, but make, but get away with it. And and now I can kind of catch that, like it's welling up from deep inside and I can catch it like right around here and then say, okay, not going to say that thing. Um, so, um, um, yeah, then the, the kind of positive side of that one is um, speaking in ways that are, that are pleasing, that are pleasant and sweet, and um, I think that this is really nice. This this is one. This is something that I think people really appreciate. Like I, I try to put this one into place when I'm, um, you know, I'm at a restaurant or a grocery store, and I'm working with the people who are, you know, the the service staff there, um, because I think that service staff tend to be kind of just treated like a means to an end and, and everyone just sort of like says, okay, give me my stuff and I can go, you know? Um, but I find that, you know, one of the ways that I've tried to, to counteract my tendency to be snarky and rude is, um, to intentionally like make eye contact with people and sincerely ask how their day is and, just try to have those human connections with people when I'm in kind of a transaction and it's maybe somebody I'll never see again. Um, just trying to counteract the negative karma that I've had of harsh speech by, um, you know, intentionally planting the positive counterpart. The fourth of the four um, negative karmas of speech is idle speech. Um, and this is gossip, basically, harm, you know, harmless gossip. Um, Buddha says it's things like talking when there's no reason to talk or um, interjecting yourself into conversations needlessly or saying things to draw attention to yourself that aren't actually substantive. Um, In general, speaking in ways that are not substantive. Um, And and so the the positive counterpart to that is um, speaking meaningfully. And that is sort of waiting until you have something meaningful to contribute before you interject yourself into a conversation. Um, You know, as I'm, you know, repeating, like these are things that we have to look at in our own process and kind of pay attention to and see how, you know, how these work for us, which of these are especially relevant to us and which ones we want to work on. Or, um, yeah, looking at the types of karma that we want to plant for our future experience. And then there's the the three uh, karmas of thought, the three negative karmas of thought. And um, the first of these is, in Sanskrit, the word is tershna, which uh, literally means thirst. But it's translated into English as craving, as... I saw another one for it. 
earlier, but I don't have it right in front of me. Um, it, it it essentially means um, this kind of constant uh, constant process of wanting things for ourselves, and it's again this is a mental karma. So it is it is this it's this reaching out and grasping to things, thinking that there's something self-existently there that will um, satisfy our constant need to be satisfied. And the, the, the um, karmas of mind are really the most important ones because they are what's generating the, bo- the, the actions of body and speech. Um, the, the three mental misdeeds are also called the three poisons. Um, and Buddhism says that, that these three are the root of all of our problems. And that's um, uh, craving or desire or greed, which is the one we're talking about now, um, hatred or aversion, and ignorance itself. So these are the three mental misdeeds, the three poisons of Buddhism. Um, one way that one way to think about craving as a mental misdeed is being unhappy about the happiness of others. When you see somebody else getting something that they want and you wish you had that nice thing, like your friend buys a, a nice new car and you wish that was your new car, and you're like, oh, kind of that kind of jealous. There's a sort of there's that tinge of jealousy, like, oh, they got the thing that I wanted. But then there's also this thing that's like, oh, if I had that thing, then I'd be happy, and I people would notice me because I drive the really nice car, or whatever the thing happens to be. Um, and so that that's the kind of that's a that's a stronger form is not just the is not just the desire, but the. Um, being unhappy when other people get something that they want, that that you want, or that that I want. Um, the second of these is ill will, which is related to the the poison of aversion, and aversion is basically these are both forms of desire. And so you'll you'll hear in Buddhism that like the the source of all of our suffering is desire. But desire has two aspects to it. There's the desire to, the acquisitive desire, the desire to, to get more food, to get better food, to get more stuff, to get nicer stuff, to have a bigger house, to have a better partner, and so on. But then there's also the, the aversion side, the desire to have the things we don't want away from us. And we're just kind of habitually reacting to life like this. It's like, if I'm uncomfortable, it's because I either either I want something that's going to make me feel good and alleviate this discomfort, or there's some irritating thing that's impinging on me, and if I could just push that thing away, then I would then I would be free of that discomfort. And both of those are habits of desire, and those are the habits that are that are creating suffering at the root of everything. Um, so a, a way of characterizing ill will is um, being happy about the unhappiness of others. Like when we see the ir- the person who annoys us at work and they get reprimanded or something by the boss and we're like, yeah, they had it coming. I did, you know, that person annoys me and I'm glad that they got, um, and I'm glad that they got busted for X, Y, Z. And, and kind of rejoicing about bad things happening to other people. Um, but this, uh, you know, this, you know, goes all the way down to just um, 
you know, feeling like, you know, being mad at the, being mad at the weather and, um, you know, wishing that the weather were a little different. If it were a little bit warmer or a little bit cooler, you know, uh, you know, in summer, we wish it were we wish it was cool, like in winter. And when it's winter, we wish it was summer, warm, like summer. And and um, these are all just forms of being dissatisfied with the present. You know, that's the that's what both of these craving and ill will are planting this planting these seeds of being dissatisfied and thinking that we can fix the dissatisfaction by getting something outside of us and that's 10 the 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 10th of the of these uh these um karmic misdeeds is ignorance or or wrong views as it says in the in the handout and wrong views is what's underlying these other two of craving and aversion um and um, this ignorance is thinking that we can, it's like we can, we can micromanage our environment to like get this like equilibrium where we'll be free of suffering. And we're constantly trying to like maintain that equilibrium by micromanaging the outer world. And, and Buddhism is saying, well, that's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding about where the suffering is coming from. The suffering is not coming from the outside world. It's coming from our own habits of mind, which is what's created the karma in the past that's created the uncomfortable world. And we can work with it at the level of karma by changing the seeds that we're planting, which will change the results that we get in the outside world. But as we go through ten, you know, these ten, this list of 10, we start from the most gross of like not physically harming other creatures' bodies. And then we get to the most subtle of changing the way that our mind works so that we recognize that the suffering is coming from our own reactions and that if we can change the way that our mind works if we can interrupt that process of thinking that that um, getting you know slaking that thirst that tershna if i can slake that thirst then my that my um suffering will be alleviated and buddhism says no the you actually need to to stop the desire at its root in order to end the suffering. It's not the desire for stuff that's the problem. It's the desire itself that's the problem. And that's um, this that's this ignorance. And that's what wrong views means. Thinking that the out that the solution to our problems is in the outer world. And instead reorienting, uh, cultivating wisdom. That's the positive side of this one. You know, the positive side of of craving and ill will are both cultivating contentment. So for, for, um, for uh, um, desire and aversion, the po to plant the positive karmas for those is to cultivate contentment. Like, this is uncomfortable, but I can actually be content in the process. I can cultivate compassion. I can cultivate, cultivate equanimity. I can cultivate stillness. I can cultivate mental concentration. And, and balance the, these uncomfortable experiences out, not by trying to go out and fix them in the outer world, but trying to adjust my reaction to them. And, and uh, the 10th the misdeed of ignorance or wrong views, the, the antidote to that is to cultivate wisdom, to think about how the world is working, to remind ourselves that how, how these things were, were coming to us as a result of karma, karmic causes put into place in the past, maybe in ancient history, and that the way that we respond to them is what's going to uh, produce the kinds of results in the future. So we want to be conscientious and attentive to what's happening in the present to plant the, to, to plant the right kinds of seeds by reacting 
the in a in a conscientious way rather than an habitual reactive way. Thanks for tuning in to the Mojo Hito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com.